Welcome to the Ground Floor Podcast. Our guests today are the founders of Furniture Box, an online furniture retailer that's been featured in the Sunday Times 100. It's been listed as the fastest growing online business in the Southwest and whose founders have also been listed on the iconic Forbes 30 Under 30. So it's a really exciting conversation today. Please welcome our guests, Monty George and Dan Beckles. How are you guys doing? Very good, Ollie. Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, thank you very much for that introduction. But yeah, no, we're doing very well. Thank you for having us on. Good. No, thank you for coming down. Um, so obviously, for anyone who's not familiar with the podcast or familiar with the business, um, just take a couple minutes, summarize what Furniture Box is, how it started, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So in a nutshell, Furniture Box is an e-commerce furniture company delivering goods across the UK, Germany, and the US. Um, next day delivery, great quality furniture um, with a great team atmosphere um, back back in the offices. Um, but just to add a little bit onto that, we sell on lots of different channels. So um, we have our website, which is our main platform, but then also we sell through the likes of Amazon, uh, Wayfair, Robert Dyer, B&Q and the range. So um, it's always been a strategy that we've had um, and it's, it's really fueled our growth over the last few years. And Amazing. Dan and I started the business straight after school. Um, we, we were great friends all throughout, uh, all throughout school, played football together. And uh, Dan was going to go to university. And I said, do you want to come and run a furniture company with me? And he was mad enough to say yes. Wow. Yeah. And Seven years off. later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going, it's going all right. I it's think going it's all right. Say. There's it's a risk right. that paid off. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so, okay, let's take it right back to the beginning. Um, furniture. Why? So if we're going right back to the beginning, then yeah. we've got to go right back to, um, to selling bread at my local village store. So I was actually seven when I started selling bread. Um, so I used to bake the bread in the morning. I'd drop it uh, into um, into the local village store before I went to school, and then um, I would come back uh, each day and collect whatever I'd I'd sold. It was on a sale or return basis, and then that really sparked uh, an interest in selling. And ever since then, uh, from from the age of seven, I sold everything from honey to beeswax candles to pest control items to Poundland items. And then um, when I was, I think it was 17, having tried all manner of different things, I uh, I was looking for a product that it was quite hard to enter a market. So um, I, I thought, thought about lots of different things. And I wanted a, a product as well that had a lot of scope and I could really see myself being passionate about. And um, furniture instantly jumped out. It's heavy and bulky and it has... Uh, um, it, it has a lot of barriers to entry in the sense that you can't just do it from your living room like sure. lots of other people were. Um, and then I said to, as I said, said earlier, I said to Dan, because um, I know Dan was really, really keen on business. Do you want to do this with me? I see a massive opportunity. I've got some containers coming in. We're leaving school. Just give it a shot. So. Yeah, and I, I think the exciting thing with furniture is it's so expansive. So it's not just a single product. So, for mm -hmm. example, with dirt bikes, you might have a few different types. But sure. with furniture, you've got a whole host of categories. Um, and also it's quite a fun thing to be in because you can design the product right from scratch and get samples delivered into you and then and then sell it. And so it's um, it's a really exciting industry to be in. And um, as Monty said, I think the barriers are quite high to enter yeah. because it costs a lot. Um, it's typically quite big and bulky as well. So not only the import cost, but the export cost. Um, so I, I think it, for us, it was a real market we thought we could, mm. could make a dent in and do really well in. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so taking it to the beginning in terms of getting started, everyone, I think the first question they'll have is, okay, so money, how did you get the startup capital? What what was that spent on? So I I was always taught when I was younger to be incredibly frugal mm. and save, save, save. So ever since I was young, I'd always been saving. I never spent on anything. My parents always said, 
you can't buy something new, go on eBay, go and uh, go and find it for a better price. So that was always drilled into me. So mm. I, from initially when I started uh, selling bread, um, I did it uh, just from a few pounds. Um, and then um, through savings from grandparents giving 50 pounds at Christmas um, and and money as well that I'd made through bread, um, I started buying things from Poundland. Uh, so I used to pass it every day, uh, every day going to school. Um, and I knew how to buy on eBay. And I thought about actually, should I start trying to sell something? And because Poundland was buying product, uh, end of line product mm. um, at the time, um, there was a lot of good deals because they had to sell everything for a pound, but the actual value of the, those products was uh, normally far, far greater. And for anyone listening at home, just quickly, what's an end of line product? So an end of line product is a product that um, is being sold potentially by another business when, when they go bust. So they're picking up these uh, these bargain, bargains for probably 20p to the pound. And then uh, and then Pound were selling them obviously for a pound, but the the normal retail value of these products might have been about fifteen pounds. So right. an example would be a sushi making kit, yeah. And I was buying them for Poundland and selling them for ten pounds, right, on eBay. That sounds like the early days of Amazon FBA, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the value of money has always been something that we've we've held very closely. So um, we have completely bootstrapped the whole business um, up until the point where we got to today. And part of that as well, as, as Monty said, growing up, um, money was incredibly important. He wasn't very, or he was very frugal, sorry, with money um, growing up. And it was similar to me, um, where my parents at the age of 15 told me that they weren't giving me any more money for anything and I had to go and get a job. So mm. um, very early on, um, even before that, we realized the value of money and how important it was and to spend it wisely. And that sort of prompted everything going forward in terms of what we do, yeah. um, who we are and where we spend our money, because we had to make profit in order to, um, go to that next level and say, mm. you know, we've always been incredibly frugal. And so how much startup capital was required right at the beginning? Literally uh, pounds. Okay. So, so yeah, really, really nothing. Um, in, in terms of furniture box though, um, all of the money that I'd accumulated through trading yeah. um, from, from an early age was then invested into furniture box, into buying stock. Um, so we had age on our side. So the, the accumulating effect of starting so young and not having any outgoings as well. Mm. Um, when it's compounding in terms of investing in stock, reselling it um, was fairly large. Uh, so we didn't have, well, I didn't have any over overheads to begin with. So I was fortunate to be able to, to then invest that that money uh, into Furniture Box. Um, and it's, it's something that we've always wanted to maintain in terms of not taking outside investment. Yeah. Um, because we, we find that when it's your own money, you really know how to look after it, where to spend it, you understand where the, the profit is coming from in the business and where you might be also leaking and you're less careless. Um, yeah, that's always been our philosophy. Yeah, I, I think the over, only overheads you really have when you're that age is sort of McDonald's and beer. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, very good point. So um, for the first piece of furniture you get at the beginning, are you sort of, are you white labeling it? Are you sending it off to be designed and getting it built and designed yourself? Like what's the, because I think again, all of this is about drilling in just how did it happen? So you think, okay, we're going to do furniture. Where do you even go to get furniture? How does that even, how does that come about? Uh, so it was all online. So mm. reading forums, looking um, looking at sites like e-commerce uh, sites um, so that it will take you uh, to all parts of the world. So you can, you can uh, read about different manufacturers. Um, so yeah, we use sites initially. So we'd go on sites like Alibaba, but there are a few more to find these suppliers. Uh, looking back, it's, it's, it's not, the, not, the way that, um, not the way that I perhaps would have done it. Uh, if if I knew everything I knew now, but especially when you're uh, when you're just finding out and you're just trying to look for for different different opportunities in the market, um, yeah, online. If I could pull at that thread, 
how would you do it now? That part of the process. So if if I knew I knew now and I knew 100% that I wanted to go into furniture, I would go out to a exhibition. I, I would go and uh, go to the exhibition, meet the people, see what you're buying because the first three years was mistakes galore. So mm -hmm. I would have, well, we would have, sorry, uh, we would have um, not made those mistakes. Yeah. Um, had we, yeah, had we known. I, yeah. I think it's quite difficult though because it, it all depends on how much capital you have available and going out to an exhibition might cost you thousands of pounds and there's no guarantee that you're going to get a return from that. Mm. And so it's similar to the concept of us selling on our channels where it's a very easy access to go on somewhere like Alibaba yeah where you have um pre-existing suppliers that you can choose you don't necessarily need to go out you could still get a sample over and the cost is minimal to you and um, but yeah as monty said if if we could go back now and we had the capital available definitely going out to an exhibition seeing the product there and there yeah. mm. um, and then being able to take it from there mm. yeah i can imagine especially with furniture those are quite expensive mistakes to make right at the start yeah we we made some big ones yeah, yeah <laughs> we made some really really big ones um so yeah, with, with regards to packaging, just getting the packaging wrong. We didn't know anything about packaging. We obviously were, we sent, well, yeah, we were sending products out um, and we used to get loads of damages. And mm. we've, we've now, well, we, we, knew, uh, we knew that we were getting damages because we were talking to the customers. We were seeing the product going back. We were, uh, we were in the warehouse every day as well. So we basically created packaging now that means um, that it can be drop tested to mm. uh, to 60 centimeters. Our mirrors are drop tested to a meter. Okay. Um, and we saw that as a huge drain on uh, finances in the business. Yeah. Um, and because we were uh, putting all the pieces together, um, both with the customer service and, and doing work in the warehouse as well, and also talking to the suppliers, we were able to create really strong packaging for our products. I'm with you. And so you've got your first products. You've been on Alibaba. Um, what's the what's the next step from there then? So initially, um, we were selling on eBay. eBay okay. was the first first platform. Um, we well, I've been trading for quite a long time on eBay, and then Dan, yeah, Dan came on uh, and and started setting up Amazon. Yeah. So we very very quickly figured out that channels was the way we were going to go. Um, we didn't have the money to say, right, let's go and spend £50,000 on a website, brands make a new website, and let's go and pay for a lot of ads yeah. to the website. We just didn't have that capital. Um, because we had the eBay profile, we could sell things on eBay quite easily because um, we had lots of reviews and ratings, so customers could come to the site and we were ranking quite well. We then looked at other channels we'd go on to. Um, so Amazon was the next one we went on to, um, and so we started on Amazon and that started going really well. Um, and then at about the age of, I think it was about 20, um, so about two and a bit years after we'd started, Tesco Direct contacted us because um, they'd seen the reviews we were getting and the products we were selling and said, um, we want you as a seller on our platform. And um, I'll never forget the day they came uh, to visit us because it was just myself and Monty at this point. Um, I think they assumed that we were maybe a bigger team. Yeah. Um, mm. We worked out of an old chimney factory. That's where the warehouse was. And our office was this tiny little space at the back of a sort of an artist studio. Um, so what we asked the artist to do, um, funny enough, she actually works for us now because we've stayed very good friends. Um, but what we asked her to do is we, if we could borrow the gallery. So we cleared out the gallery floor, put this big table in, so made it look as though we had this meeting room. Yeah, okay. And then, yeah. <laughs> you played the game. Played yeah, the game. yeah, yeah. And, uh, managed to convince someone from Tesco Direct that um, yeah, two 20-year-old guys could, um, yeah. could facilitate growth on their platform. And it was a, a fantastic leap for us um, and certainly a big one because they didn't have many suppliers on there. Um, and so as soon as we went on to there, we saw really good sales and, and that drove our growth. And from there, we then went on to Wayfair, 
yeah um, and a lot of other channels since so that was always a way we decided we were going to grow because your margins are fixed you know what you're getting mm. um you put a product onto amazon and you might be charged 15 percent, for example mm. you can build that into your costing whereas if you build a website and you put a product on your website and nobody visits your website without paid ads you yeah. don't know what your margin is and it's a yeah. lot more difficult yeah definitely out, definitely so. and were you doing any social media marketing at this point or was it all just no. word of mouth and through channels yeah it was all, all through channels we became incredibly good at learning how the channel worked yeah so picking apart the algorithm working out um what pricing strategy we should put forward in terms of penetration so that this is a big one that we use in terms of penetrating the platform um with lower lower margin um, and then building um, a bit of traction with the product and then bringing the price to the actual mm. price that it should be. Um, gaining reviews as well. We we made sure that we were incredibly on it with customer service. And if there was a problem, we would sort it out because we knew the value that reviews had on a product, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're just launching one. We needed to make sure that um, we had strong reviews and we were getting uh, getting the product in front of people through through different tactics on these sites. I think that was the key. We we did everything. Um, so we unloaded the containers. We used to have a phone by the container that if someone called for customer service, one of us would hop off the container, answer the call, okay. um, solve the query, and then jump back in. So because of that, we realized the importance across the board. Um, we would work all throughout the night in the evenings, and um, you'd get customers saying, why on earth are you replying to my email at 9.30 at night? But yeah. mm. it's that extra level you go to and you call that person the next morning. You notice that as a customer. Yeah. You just you do notice it. It always baffles me when companies don't do that side of the business correctly. I'm like, it's so easy to just be nice and to be accommodating and you'll get a good review out of yeah. it. And that does pile up. And I think businesses underestimate that. Yeah, and I think, yeah lots, of, uh, lots of companies think that their job is done once they've sold the product. Yeah, but a lot of uh, a lot of the repeat business and the word of mouth and the reviews, which then feed back into the uh, the sales funnel, mm. actually come from afterwards. Um, so we yeah, we put a lot of focus even still on on our customer service, making sure that if there is a problem, someone could someone could uh, someone can uh, pick up the phone and talk to one of our team um, who has the agency to also sort it out as well. Um, and isn't going to just give a robotic response. Mm. I think one thing that holds a lot of people back when it comes to starting a business is the idea that, especially if it's a really saturated sector like furniture, you know, it's not like it's a, a sort of new tech space where it's barely discovered and you sort of, you know, you get first movers advantage. Um, but I think competitors, sort of fear of competitors sets a lot of people back. What was it for you guys that made you think we can go in the space and compete with these big guys? Did you have an edge or did you just think we can just do it and eventually an edge will make itself apparent? How did, how did that kind of affect you? I think our edge is, it was twofold. I'd say, first of all, our work ethic. So we said, we are going to make this work. We're going to work just flat out hours, 13, 14, 15 hour days, every single day, 365 days of the year. If we need to, we are going to make this a success. The second point is looking at your competitors. So initially the competitors on the platform and saying, we will be better than them in every way. So looking at maybe their feedback scores and saying, okay, they've only got 90% out of 100, we're going to have 95 or 99. Mm. Um, second of all, their products, so saying, okay, what are they selling on the platform? What's popular? How can we make that better? Let's make these improvements. And so for us, it was always looking at how we could be better than our competitors and offer a better service as well, because things will go wrong with every single company, mm. um, that every single product, there will be times where something goes wrong but it's making those things right that make a massive difference. And I think a lot of companies disregard that, but word of mouth is so important. Mm. Um, we, we see it all the time in our reviews where um, customers have bought something, say, wow, I had such an amazing experience. I recommended it to my yeah. family or my friends and they've then gone and bought something. Yeah. And it's that service level that really drove us forward, I think. 
No, definitely. I think even now when you've got social media marketing, which is just so saturated, that word of mouth marketing is is definitely more powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think just, just to add to that as well, I think we've always been incredibly confident in our abilities and our ability to sort problems out. We never look at a challenge as something that's not something that could be overcome. Mm-hmm. So Dan and I, we uh, we used to uh, drive into work together. We, we lived together. We still live together as well. Um, and we'd constantly be talking to each other and solving these problems. So we just built that confidence in terms of we will do this. We are going to do this. Mm. And if any problem comes along the way, we will sort it out one way or another. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the general mentality that we've had. Um, big moment, the first sale. Tell me about that. How did that come about? Who was the customer? How did you acquire them? How did it feel? Take me through that experience. I, Look I, at the smiles I, already I, on your faces. Look how happy it still hits you. I know. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> oh, the, smiles, yeah. the, smiles the smiles because I can't remember. I, I think I think on that though, I think we get, get those moments all the time when we bring out a new product and that's still the buzz. Mm. Bring, doing a lot of research with the product, doing all of the merchandising, um, getting all of the, uh, the pricing right, getting onto the platforms. And then for a customer to go and click on that and say, yes, I want to buy that product. Mm. And then um, and then obviously getting the sale, that's still a huge buzz. So we've just bought out a new lighting range um, and it's, it's been a, a long process, probably about a year, getting all the compliance sorted. Um, with that, it's been a bit of a nightmare, but we've, we've, got, we've got the product to, uh, product to market and, um, and we had our first sales last week and that's been absolutely fantastic. I can't remember a moment uh, yeah. when we had, had our first furniture sale because it was... Uh, it was so long ago and because uh, i was doing a lot of other selling as well it sort of merged into, into mm. one. it's like being a kid at christmas uh, mm, anytime yeah. you bring out a new range and you we are literally waiting there for the first sale and yeah, yeah. where it's come I from bet. and who's bought it yeah so that's the exciting stuff now it's, yeah. it's going forward and, and it might be a new geography so um we've just launched in the us and the first sale there we were absolutely buzzing about and you know telling everyone at work and yeah it's those exciting moments um yeah because you have such a build-up it might be six months of hard work mm. for that point but then yeah. you know that you've got it right and you know the customers are happy with it. So. Yeah, it must be a really nice feeling. Well, so what what work goes into launching a new line then? So we, I mean, it used to be Dan and I just picking products because we'd done a bit of research online and and thought that uh, we had a good price point and it was it was going to be a good seller. It had like a, a nice, nice appeal. Mm. Um, now we've got a whole team. So we, um, we've got someone who will um, look at trends, look at ideas, bring in her own ideas as okay. well. Um, and then we will send it through a whole process, uh, which will go through um, things like compliance, all of the technical documentation, um, lots of sampling um, that we have. We'll make sure that um, all the products are FSC and like UKFR uh, certified. So um, there's lots of different processes. And then it gets passed on to uh, our listings team who then pick it up and then we'll format all of the data in the correct way to feed through to all of the different channels. Dan and I literally used to do this the whole time. So we used to build the most incredibly complex spreadsheets that would uh, basically uh, take all of the data and feed the data out into the format that was needed for all of the different channels. Mm. Um, so that was just for an uh, efficiency saving. But now we've got a great team. That, uh, How big is your team now? Uh, it's just over 50. Your first hire, who was that? And why was that the first role that you hired? And how far along the journey were you when you when you made that choice? So our first hire was a woman called Trudy. Um, and it actually wasn't us going out to uh, put a job out. It was someone coming to us asking if we needed help. Us sitting back saying, well, we've just unloaded two or three containers today. We've done all of the customer service. Actually, we could do with a helping hand. Um, but she was in customer service. Mm. And that was about 
three years into um, furniture box. The first three years, it's just the two of you. Yeah, amazing. Um, but it's I think it's so valuable those three years that set us up for the the rest of our time. Yeah. And um, initially with that first hire, it was all based on sort of front end. Mm. So we realised that we were growing at quite a substantial rate, and we couldn't keep doing everything. So we said, right, mm. okay, first hire is going to be customer service. So that takes a little bit away so we can focus on the other side of things. Yeah. And um, then it was the warehouse. So we built up sort of the front end first um, before, as the years went on, building up a marketing team, for example. Um, so it was very much just geared on, we're selling a lot of products, but we need people to help us get those out the door. Yeah. Um, but we were still heavily involved um, up yeah. until probably and about a year or so ago. And you, you can imagine it's just been Dan and I for three years knowing absolutely everything about the business and then just bringing someone else in and sort of expecting them to pick up as well and be like, oh, we know everything. But yeah. we, we learned the hard way in terms of having to to really uh, teach people and train people in, in the right way mm. um, and, uh, and impart knowledge rather than uh, rather than just relying on car journeys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think what's, what was difficult as well is that we were only 19 or 20 at this point. Yeah. Um, and when you're bringing someone in that's more than double your age and telling them what to do, it sort of feels yeah. a bit weird. Yeah, um, I bet. And we'd never had experience of managing people. And in terms of leadership, we've you know, captained sports teams and that sort of thing. But this was our first experience of managing someone. Mm. And so that was difficult initially. And I, I think over the first year or two, we got some things a bit wrong because we were essentially best friends with our staff, which is a fantastic way to be then that made it difficult if something didn't quite mm. go according to plan or if you needed to be honest and truthful yeah. about something because you you don't want to yeah. hurt that person's feelings. Age so, old yeah, issues. Of yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. So how have you gone about making sure you hire the right people then since Trudy? So, including so, Trudy. so for the first about 10 hires, it was pretty much just word of mouth, just people in the in the village that we'd, we'd heard of. Um, we didn't really go out to seek any um, any particular expertise. And even for the next year and a half, it was all geared towards the front end of the business. So in the warehouse, um, in the customer service team, a, a bit of HR, a bit of accounting. And then Dan and I realized that to really drive the business on, we need to be stop, stop doing all of the, a lot of the back end things that are actually going to be, um, be pushing the, pushing the business on. Um, so that's all of the tech side of things, all of the marketing, um, all of the listings that I was talking about. So we basically built a team that was based in Bristol um, to uh, to do all of that. Um, yeah. And we probably should have done that a lot sooner um, in hindsight. Um, but we were, uh, yeah, we didn't want to give it up. We quite enjoyed a lot of that. I've heard a few people say that, to be honest. It's just really hard to actually start delegating. And it's hard to know when to start delegating and actually letting go of some responsibilities. I think the key as well is culture. Yeah. And that's a huge, huge thing for us. So we are like a family-run company. Um, I'll sit down and talk to anyone and everyone. We know every single person's name mm, in the company. Yeah. It's all about the culture of the company. And if you you might be the best person for the job, but if you're not going to fit the culture, if you're you've got an ego or you think you're better than someone else, or you're just not going to fit in with the team and be a team player, mm. then you're not not right for us. And so that has really helped push us forward because our staff retention rates are fantastic. And um, when someone joins Furniture Box, they don't tend to leave. Mm. Um, and so that has enabled us to grow much further because up until about two or three years ago, we only had about 20 staff, 15 staff. And if those staff had left, if those staff weren't enjoying their jobs, we wouldn't be where we are today. So it's mm. so important to make sure that people are happy at work. Um, and so that's always been a big thing for us. I wanted to touch on um, the fact that you guys are best friends, because I think that's a really important 
point for a lot of people because obviously there's the age old thing of you know don't mix business and friends and don't work with friends i've always found it to be a great thing i find it to be really conducive i spoke to an entrepreneur the other day who said i i believe in uh starting things with friends and working with friends but i don't believe in hiring friends because then there's an, there's a power dynamic there that i'm not really comfortable with but then i've met people who have done the opposite so Talk me through that. What was it like? You know, did you guys think about that ahead of time about what it was going to be like? Did you have to sit down and say, look, you know, who's doing what? Who's this? Who's that? You know, that's I think that's quite an uncomfortable thing for a lot of people. I, yeah, I, I think we we've always had a very, very clear understanding of where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And we realized that working together is going to um, mean that we're going to get there. Um, so I, I think we've been clear about that from the start. At the beginning, I think it did help that I started the business and I was able to um, impart the knowledge. So I, I was in, in a way to begin with senior, but then very quickly I, I saw Dan was fully invested in it and wanted to share share it with him. So um, I think that that really aided things. And we now have regular conversations in terms of um, our approach to it um, and, and where we want to get to and, and how we're feeling about things. So we are very open in that regard. Um, and yeah, we've got the same friendship group. We live together. So um, so yeah, it, it hasn't been a negative at all. And uh, it, it helps knowing someone uh, really, really well, I think. Yeah, and no, it's that level of trust. Mm. It's where you know someone so well, you know every single thing about them. You know what they're good at, what they're not so good at. And for us, it's, it's worked incredibly well because we knew going in, and this is sort of bring it back to what I said initially, we were going to make it work. And I knew how hard wanted work through school. And I knew how hard we needed to work together to make it work. Mm. And a lot of the time, if you go in with a friend, sometimes that friend doesn't work as hard or there's one person who's not doing or pulling their weight. Mm. That never happened with us. And so we always pulled our weight. We always went into things together. And I think it's it's a bit of a weird situation to be living with and uh, really yeah, someone. But for us, it really worked because the only time we had to ourselves where we could say, right, let's work on the business rather than in the business was on car journeys. And mm. so it was on the commute and we used to drive, it was about an hour and 15 from Bristol into our warehouse in Mitt. And they were some of the most productive hours. And so we literally lived, breathed, slept, <laughs> eat. Yeah. Work. yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's just worked incredibly well. I think we complement each other well in terms of what we're good at um, and what we're not so good at. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think you, you have to get lucky with that because I do know people that you do yeah you there. do you need to know the other person very well right I think like me, me and Ollie starting this podcast it's a good mm. match of skills and you need to know that before you start to be honest with you yeah I'd like to know what is it that's in terms of the division sort of between the two of you what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses and vice versa like where do you complement each other because I always find that interesting so I, I think I look at things I, I look at things from a, a more uh, financial perspective mm. um, it's purely based on how I've been thinking from a very young age because it, I always wanted to make sure I was, we were making uh, making the most with our money and we were reinvesting it in the right way. Uh, so yeah, on the financial side and uh, the the product marketing side, um, I do a little bit more and damn people. And, yeah, so I think this is where it complements quite well. We do a lot of the same things on different channels. So for example, I might manage Amazon, um, one month you might manage Wayfair, but there are separate. Um, things that we do outside of that so obviously with the people side mm. i'm probably stronger in terms of like teams and people and pulling people together making sure people are on task that sort of thing but in terms of the division of work we do do a lot of things and i think it it really helped in the the early stages because we could do everything mm. we weren't relying on one another to say, oh, i can't do this can you do that or yeah i can't yeah it so it 
it's an interesting one because people always ask that. But yeah. yeah. We don't, like a lot of founders, we don't have separate roles where I'm only responsible for yeah. And product, for example, Monty's only responsible for financials. We do do a lot of the same things. So. I think we have st- we have stronger stronger areas, and, and Dan Dan deals with uh, uh, with with certain areas like uh, all the legal things, uh, looking through legal documentation and that sort of thing. Um, but as Dan said, we do have a lot of skills that we are both very good at because mm. we we essentially grew up together in business, so yeah. we we know we both know the same mm. things or many of the same things. Um, and I think where the division lies is um where we prefer and where we enjoy and where we maybe worked a little bit harder over the years yeah in terms of scaling um so you're starting to get some sales in there's a bit more sort of consistency in terms of like okay this could actually start to be something how long do you wait until you pay yourself and then when it gets to the point where you are paying yourselves how do you determine what percentage of the money coming in is what you spend on each other how do you divide that can you sort of touch on that a little bit uh, so initially we didn't didn't pay ourselves a huge amount. Um, so nominal salaries were about twenty five thousand um, pounds, and that was for the first first year or two. Um, I always had the philosophy that if the money's in the business, then it's it's our money anyway. Yeah, so yeah. It, it doesn't necessarily matter, and the money can be uh, spent better, especially in those early stages, mm. um, in the business rather than outside of it. Um, I, and we, we continued on that trajectory, slowly upping our salary for the first three years. So probably about £10,000 a year we, we'd upped it. Um, and then um, at, at the point, we, we had a really, really good um, year and a half uh, during COVID. And we said, right, okay, this is the time to take a bit of money off the table. Um, so we paid ourselves larger dividends than we would have yeah. normally and both invested in houses okay. um, just to say, okay, uh, we fully believe in this, but we've got the cash reserve mm. within the business um, to take a bit of money off the table. And if something drastic happens for whatever reason, we've we've all we've yeah, at least got you've got that. Yeah, we've yeah. got houses. So yeah, so, yeah. vanity was never that important to us. And mm. having a flashy car or um, you know having designer clothes wasn't anything we cared about. Yeah, um, we cared about driving the business forward. And so, as Monty said, anything we could put back in, we knew. If we put twenty thousand pounds back into the business, that twenty thousand pounds might turn into a hundred thousand pounds in a year's yeah. time, and so we were always focused on that. Yeah. So I think it's really important for people starting out not to instantly see um, what they're making and think, "Fantastic, mm. I can spend that." It's thinking ahead, say, "Right, what can I do with that money that's going to put me in a better position um, in the years to come?" Yeah. And just on that note, then, what is it that's that's driving you forwards now? I, I think it's the the aim of being the largest furniture company in the world. Okay. Well, it, well, it is, and that, uh, we've we've done very well for ourselves. We're twenty five years old. Um, we always get asked, uh, "What's your what's your end game? Like, you can just sell this. You you wouldn't have to work." But for us, it's it's empowering our pl- employees. It's building the company. It's the excitement, as as we were saying earlier, of selling the product. It's building fantastic products. It's seeing new opportunities every single day that that excite you, that, that get you out of bed. So. Um, so yeah, all of these different things are driving us on, and it's uh, you. You do need good financials to be able to to back that all up and to be yeah. able to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not the financials that are personally driving us because yeah, we've got everything that we need, sure. and uh, yeah, a bit more cash in the bank personally isn't going to make us any happier. I, I think it's about being the best that you could possibly be in your field. Mm. And when we were younger, sort of taking this right back, um, we played professional football um, for year teams. So I was at Bristol Rovers, and once was at Yeovil and Bournemouth we were always striving to be the best, whether that was, in, we were super competitive, whether it was in 
school football teams where it was anything wanted to be the best mm. and so it's that same drive now that we want to be the best furniture company in the world the biggest furniture company in the world we want to give the best experience we want to give the best products and that's sort of what gets us up every day and that's what pushes us forward because if we can do things better than everyone else yeah. and mm. we can do that while growing we can bring a whole uh, raft of products to customers around the world and know that people are going to be happy with that and have a better experience than they can have anywhere else mm. One we, thing, oh, go on. No, no, go on. I was just going to say one thing I actually wanted to ask you, Dan, was what gave you the confidence to join Monty right at the start? Because I know mm. we were talking before the podcast and you were saying you had some place lined up at university and you were going to go down the more sort of traditional route, should we say. Yeah. What gave you when Monty came to you the, the confidence to think, right, I'm going to put that on hold, maybe even say no to it completely and focus on the business because I believe in it. Yeah. So I think one of the big things is having known Monty since at the age of about 10, yeah. I knew how hard he worked. And so whilst we were all still at school and he was selling various bits and bobs, we could see how hard Monty worked and how driven he was. So having grown up all throughout school with him and building a very, very good friendship, I knew that if I was to go into business with someone, he was the sort of person I would want to go into business with. And I know that we would make it a success together. Also with the university, I had a place there, but I deferred it. So I said, right, okay. if the worst comes to the worst um, and it goes horribly wrong and it doesn't work or we don't work together, I can just go to uni next yeah. year and say, I think a really important thing is when you're younger, your overheads and your responsibilities are much lower. Mm. If I was 25 or 26 and maybe um, I was coming out of a job and there was no guarantee on anything, yeah, it might have been a slightly more difficult decision. But for me, it, it was pretty instant. I remember Monty asked me, I, I said yes there and then. <laughs> yeah. It was a, yeah. a considered thing. So um, I think making that decision when you're younger makes things a hell of a lot easier. It does. Yeah. What were you going to study? Uh, economics right okay love bro yeah. right 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 love sports so i thought i'd try and, and this is the whole thing with uni i, I love sports so i was like i'm going to tie it in with going to a sports uni and doing something to do with business because i always wanted to run my own business just didn't know what it would be in. yeah um, mm. but uh, glad i didn't go now in the um in the early stages um because we had so we had charlie mullins on um from pimlico plumbers the other day and he was making a really big point about from the very beginning he made a really big point about branding and about sort of differentiating himself as being very different to what was out there, whether it was in uniforms or the approach to the business. Um, in terms of like the name and the branding and everything else, how much thought did you guys give to that early doors? Because some people say, look, you know, I mean, I know I've done this where, you know, you procrastinate for weeks on end being like, well, I need the name and I can't do anything else without the name. And I think a lot of people go through that. Did, was it a case where you spent a while sort of really cracking down before you launched or was it sort of a move fast and break things kind of situation? De definitely the latter, move fast and break things. Yeah, we we made every mistake under the sun uh, to begin with. We we wanted to get products out. We wanted to sell uh, sell the product. Brand has been a huge afterthought, to be perfectly honest, mm. and it is an area that we have so much runway with. Because fundamentally, there's so many good things about our business, but we don't um, we don't articulate that to our customers um, through the website. And and I think um, there's there's going to be a lot that we're going to do with that uh, in the coming years. But yeah, initially for us, it was about product and channels. And on on the channels we sold on, we didn't necessarily need a brand mm. um, to do that. Um, but it, in hindsight, if we'd branded things a lot better, we would have been far further forward. And that brand equity that we would have gained over the years um, would, be, um, would be pretty immense. Having said that, we were making lots of mistakes at the same time. So maybe not having the brand for the first three years is probably a good thing because we're in a better place now so um so the service is uh service is better but um yeah that's that's the way we went about it i, I think the important thing once you said there as well is because of the channels 
So because of the channels, they were our brand. If you go and buy something from Amazon, you say, oh, I bought this from Amazon. You don't say, oh, I bought this from Furniture Box. Mm. So for us, we didn't give it as much consideration as perhaps if we were launching a website. And yeah, as Monty said, it was a bit of an afterthought. But looking back now, it's a, it's a mistake we've learned from and then we're rectifying. So. I mean, I guess, at the, and I was just, just a sort of flyaway point, I guess at the end of everything, it's better to have a great product and then, you know, you can figure out branding than to have the most sparkly branding with no substance behind it. So exactly. it's worse, worse mistakes to make. And, and, and better, better than that is it needs, you need to be in the game. You need to be making, yeah. making yeah. money to be able to reinvest. Um, and we, we didn't want to fall short. So our priority was always always to make sure that the business was generating revenue and thinking about how we could do that just so that we could get past those first few years. Mm. Um, and and now we're getting to a really exciting point where we've, we've done that grind. We've got, us, we've got the business into a position where we can start um, developing these things from a position of, uh, position of strength. So, mm. yeah. um, And what was, when was the sort of pivot, I suppose, to your own website versus channels? So it was once we generated enough revenue. Yeah. Um, and this is where putting money back into the business was so key because we had some revenue and we said, right, what should we do with this? And we said, let's build a website because um, with a website, we manage our own costs. With Amazon and eBay, we have a 10% and a yeah. five, uh, 15%, for example, that we have to pay. So we said, ultimately, if we can drive more revenue to our website, that means we're not having to pay um, all of these, um, these fees. Mm. Granted, you might need to advertise and you might spend on SEO and PPC to get people to that yeah. site. But organically over time, if you can drive that, it's essentially free revenue. Mm -hmm. So we started out on a bit of a brand mission. So let's create this website. Remember the first um, first website we created was rubbish. <laughs> Looking back now, <laughs> it, it worked, but it, was, it wasn't great. And we didn't put a huge amount of time into it. I was doing most of the, um, we did have, have a development agency, but because they were quite expensive, I was doing a lot of the dev work and the back end work of the website and changing lots of things, mm. sort of just Googling how to do things yeah. and getting on with it on a Magento site. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really sort of at that point where we said, what can we do with this money? Where would mm. we best invest if we could place more money in stock, but actually stock's turning around relatively quickly. Yeah. Mm. Let's build the website at the right time. And what's your split now then between sales on your website versus channels? Our website's at about 40%. Okay. Um, so it's, yeah, it's the front runner. Yeah. Oh, and then yeah, the other channels split out. Um, yeah, varying. Um, so we've got channels like Wayfair and Amazon, who are yeah, sort of twenty, mm. and we've got other smaller ones like um, the range and B and Q and and, uh, and Robert Dars. Was there anything that you thought? Um, sort of, I know we mentioned it briefly earlier, but when you were looking at your competitors early on, was there anything that you thought or that you do now that you think you do differently to them, or was it a case of just we're going to do exactly what they do, we're just going to do it better? or sort of a hybrid of the two? I, I think we do quite a few things differently. Today. Mm. Um, we are massively catered around the customer and that customer experience to the point where with our instructions, for example, they're video instructions. So you get a QR code on the instructions, you scan the QR code and it will take you to a YouTube video where you've got live models putting together the tables. Mm. That's come from the fact that over the last seven years, six, seven years, myself and Monty have been on the end of those phone calls when customers I used to call up and say, I can't assemble this. And I'd run out to the warehouse, get one, take some pictures yeah. of the warehouse yeah. and send it yeah. to them. And so we were like, right, how can we make this easier? Because one of the biggest 
gripe points, I think, for all people when buying furniture is oh, it's turning it together. So that's such a really interesting point because I have never ever all the furniture I bought never had that come up in any of the furniture I bought. So that's yeah, interesting. That you put the QR code with a video on it. I mean, that's a really good yeah, really good point. Everything. I mean, every any time where you used to Google something to learn, yeah, it, it's just YouTube now. Yeah, YouTube and you Google. It is. If I want to learn anything, I want to watch someone physically because yeah. I'm an idiot, and so I don't, <laughs> yeah. don't want to. If I read yeah. it, I might make a mistake. But if I see someone go, the screw goes in this thing. Yeah. I go right. I've got a screw and I've got this thing. So that's a genius idea the thing is that that's all born on making the customer experience better our customer service team are personable Mm. so you'll call up someone in our customer service team there's an issue and there's not a set response of this is what we can do it's actually how can we help you whether that's putting something on a special am delivery for you whether that's um, sending something on a a truck Mm. a dedicated truck because you need it that day they're there to support you and you're, you're speaking to a person you're not just speaking to a wall that's been given a script saying this is what we can do sorry we can't yeah. go above and beyond that and even now um myself and monty if we need to and when we need to we pick up a phone and call a customer mm. if they've had a really terrible time and i'll call up and say and likewise with monty we'll call up and say look we're really sorry this is what we can do for you and try and resolve it because for us it's all about that customer experience mm. product wise and um, also that's where i think we're a little bit different to competitors um, we are very competitively priced and that's because we're a very lean company mm. so we don't have huge overheads still and it means that we can beat a lot of our competitors on price um, and one thing that we use is we are essentially champagne taste for beer money mm. um, so <laughs> I like that people that want I'm stealing that <laughs> yeah, that's good um, people that want their house to look great um, yeah. and get great quality furniture yeah. don't want to pay really high prices we are the gap in the market and um, there for them and there's not many um, companies in the furniture industry that are doing that yeah and uh, just to just to add to that on the customer piece we're we're looking to uh push our cutoff time back to eight o'clock in the evening uh which will be industry leading for furniture so we'll be able to send a dining set out or sofa out um if someone orders it before eight o'clock and they'll receive it next day um currently it's one o'clock uh, but with our new warehouse in the new year uh, that's what we'll be, uh, be achieving wow um so it's, it's all very much customer focused in terms of how can we make the customer experience better? And as Dan uh, pointed out, through a lot of our experiences that we've had, we know exactly what the customer is thinking and what the customer is wanting because mm. we've been on the front line and we've been able to join up all the dots as well with the, with the warehouse, um, spending years in the warehouse, spending years on the phones to customers, spending years developing products um, where they're able to, to try and tailor the whole operation to serving the customer. Um, so yeah, I think that's one, one area that we've, uh, that, we're starting to, well, we have been a lot better in starting to make inroads on our competitors um, and our, and also our agility as well to move quickly, to, to be able to seize different opportunities, to, to uh, latch onto new trends, that sort of thing. Did you ever do any recon, like buy a competitor's product and maybe call their customer oh, service and all that kind of stuff and make them, it's like, they didn't do that, they didn't do that. We could start doing that <laughs> on ours. Yeah, funnily enough, we, we do on occasions. Yeah. Not that often, but the, the last time I did it was um, because I wanted to see their version of a similar product. It was a solid wood item and I mm. wanted to see what it was like. I actually ended up um, calling them up and giving them some help and feedback. Like, you need to put your legs yeah. in. Yeah. They weren't a big competitor. They were just a local company. But I said, you're going to have problems with this and yeah. sort of help them out in that sense. Wow. Because um, we, we, we have done it on occasion, but we've always been focused on driving forward and making our product better. So um, sometimes we do it to compare and see see what our product's like against theirs. And, um, you can take a lot of things from people's websites as well. Mm. So, and we'll always scan our competitors' websites, see what they're doing. They might have an idea and we might say, that's a really good idea, but we can do it better. Mm. Um, yeah. Or we will 
add this on because we know that has more value. So I think it's important to and understand. I, I, I think that's a really good point about you don't necessarily need to have the idea. You just need to be able to do it the best. Um, and that's always been our philosophy. We we come up with lots of ideas the whole time. Hmm. Um, but some of the some of the best um, ideas out there are ideas that other people have thought of. Um, and it's important to then uh, not necessarily um replicate them exactly but think about how you can maybe add to them and improve them and come in from a different angle um so yeah that's one thing that we've yeah, we've always done i wanted to just go back to that thing you said about the small company that you actually called them up and gave them some feedback and some advice i think that's really interesting and i want to ask you why you did that because i think like you know there's that famous um Tupac interview when he was talking about the state of the world and he was like it's a lot of gimme 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 push 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 and i think a lot of business people would think even if they're not a direct competitor I don't want to give them any chance if they could overtake us. Why did you do that? So for me, I love helping people. And this is in a business sense, I love it. Mm. So I've got friends and family that have started up businesses that I've spent a lot of time having them in their business because if I can impart some of my knowledge and save them the, the stresses and issues we went through, then I will. With that particular company, they were quite a small local company. And for them, they probably don't take into consideration a lot of these mm. things because we learned the hard way having been on the end of the phone but if you're not learning the hard way and you're just selling these products and you're saying oh okay we've got a, a damage rate of 50 percent we just factor into our margin you're not working on anything so i thought actually if i impart that knowledge onto them they are going to have a better business a better product and that might save them a, a few thousand pounds mm. particularly in this climate but companies are struggling and so anything that can be done to help a, a company give advice um, I'm more than happy to do it. If it was a, a main competitor, yeah, <laughs> I probably, yeah. probably wouldn't do yeah. the same thing. But um, I think it's really important and it's it's a, a good thing to do because people have given us advice in the past mm. and that has made a huge difference. There's some bits of advice that people have given us that they might have thought was absolutely minute, but that's actually led to game-changing things mm. for us. So anything we can do to support or help anyone else or give advice on, um, I've always, yeah, all that. Do you see that as a level of success or a sign of success? I, it's, it's an interesting question. I think so, in a way that people, if people are asking you for that help, that does make you feel good because you're like, oh, somebody's wanting to to do what Valuing we're doing. Your or, opinion, yeah, yeah. yeah. must be doing something yeah. right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I guess so, yeah. But it's it's something I, yeah, I love doing. Likewise, Monty. Yeah, and I, I think especially. Um, when we started out at a young age, people were so free with with advice um, and they felt as though they uh, needed to look after us and help us and guide us um, because they saw two vulnerable 18 year olds mm. uh, making their way in business and thought I would probably need to give them a bit of a hand here. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and likewise, Dan and I would always help people we've we've helped our friends with lots of different things um and uh yeah if anyone asks us we always, always would uh yeah give advice so on that i'm gonna have to ask then what's some of the best advice that you guys have been given and by who if there's anyone sort of noteworthy or anything but sort of what's some of the practical advice that people gave you that's sort of been the most impactful so probably one of the biggest things for us and this is quite specific to our industry and, and what we do but it was um, the idea of rolling deposits so what we used to do with our suppliers was we'd pay a 30% deposit and then 70% and when the items were being shipped. That meant that we had all that cash strapped and tied up um, with our suppliers. And as we were growing, it was becoming a massive bane because we were like, this is really frustrating. We want to grow quickly. We want mm -hmm. to be able to buy more stock because we're selling out, but then we can't get the stock in time. And it was 
literally just over a dinner um, with um, somebody in a similar industry said, oh, why haven't you thought about rolling deposits? And they said, well, what's that? Yeah. And so what the idea of a rolling deposit is you pay your supplier a nominal amount. So it might be £10,000, for example. And that means that you never need to pay a deposit. So that means that you can then um, order let's say, a million pounds worth of stock and you don't pay a deposit. So for us, that meant that we had all of this cash liquidated that we could then reinvest mm-hmm. in the business. We could get all of this stock in um, and we can sell it without having yeah. to pay that 30%. And that transformed our business. I think there's a wider point there on just cash flow strategy and mm. how, you, how you're planning to, um, to work with your suppliers and... Um, if you don't ask, you don't get. And quite often, um, if you if you think of uh, some different um, different areas, you're able to maybe stretch a few suppliers or ask ask for certain terms. Mm. You'll probably get it because there is goodwill um, mm. with with many people. You hear a lot about like nightmare suppliers and you know all sorts of things going wrong and people getting ripped off. How did you find the suppliers that you st- had when you started? And um, what sort of things would you recommend if people are going into a sort of B2C product-based business? What sort of advice would you give to people who are going to need to vet suppliers themselves? Firstly, I'd say make sure you read the contracts um, fully. Um, know exactly what they mean. Understand all the terminology. Put, edit them as well. Um, quite often people think that just because someone sent you a contract, hmm. that you can't add bits in. But make it tailored to something that's going to suit you. Um, because um, if if you've got that, especially if it's if it's overseas and it's a little bit harder to actually act on some of these things, but if you've got that, especially in the UK, then that is the gospel that everything will go back to when it goes wrong. Mm. Um, so make sure you fully understand that. That's a really big point. I, th- I think as well with suppliers, build those relationships. So go and see your suppliers, spend time with them. And with a lot of our suppliers, um, they saw us as these young 17, 18 year old kids and said, right, we need to take you a little bit under our wings. We need to support you. Mm. And we built these incredible relationships to the point now where we're still um, in very, like we, we have calls with them every single week mm. and we have such good relationships. We know all of their families, you know, you ask they're them nice. how they're doing, you catch yeah. up with them and you've built that relationship. So when something yeah. goes wrong or you need to lean on them or they need to lean on you, mm. you're there to support each other. And a great example is during COVID, there was a huge issue with stock because there was massive Bad. demand. And so suppliers had to cut out um, some other companies they're working with and prioritize. Mm. And we made sure that we had the priority mm. stock. So there were probably companies out there, a bunch of companies all over the world that didn't get their stock, but we did. And it's because of those relationships. Mm. So it's so important to make the effort, go and see people and build those relationships. Yeah, definitely. I think like, people really underestimate that. It's very transactional, I think, for a lot of businesses. If you can build it on a more personal level, it's, yeah, definitely pays dividends further down the line. It might, might sound quite counterintuitive to, uh, be making sure you've got a really watertight contract and then trying to build a relationship. I suppose it's the the whole uh, point of um, expecting the worst but hoping for the best. So once you've got that con- contract, you understand mm. where where the line is and then you build on that relationship and hopefully you'll never ever need to use that and, mm. and the relationship will be stronger than that contract. Mm. Yeah, 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 sure. And so what have been some of the hardest points of the business today? The hardest points? Um I think COVID was an incredibly tough time because our uh, sales literally doubled. um, Sounds awful. It sounds really (laughs) tough. I don't know. You managed to do it. Uh, I'm really sorry, man. (laughs) Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It was terrible. Um, (laughs) That was amazing. That's a clip in itself. It was really hard for us. We doubled our revenue. It was was an absolute nightmare. Yeah. So so I, I, I I think 
I think we always knew that it was um, it was all good, um, but it was just the physical and mental tiredness of actually fulfilling hmm. that that doubling of orders yeah. and then bringing the business up to speed uh, to cope that amount of orders. So that means double the amount of calls, double the amount of messages, double, double the amount of products. Mm. You're then trying to think, okay, we really need to take advantage of this opportunity. We need to make sure our forecasting is absolutely mm. bang on. Is our pricing completely right? Are we going to run out of stock? So all of these effects um, happened when, when COVID happened. So I personally was getting up at four every morning. I was going into the warehouse um, because I was, I was doing a stint when other people weren't in the warehouse mm. because no one really knew exactly what it was. So everyone was yeah. social distancing mm. being away. I was doing a stint in the warehouse to get product out and then come home at about 12 midday um, and then literally sit in my bed and answer emails and do work for the next six, seven hours and then go to bed at about 8.30 and then do the same again for about three months. And that was just really, really tough. Uh, it, and I always, and, and Dan was the same, we were all sort of guided by um, knowing or we always had in the back of our mind that when we come out of it, this, we are going to be in a fantastic position. Yeah, yeah. And it was never, never really a chore, but there were some moments that were incredibly draining. <laughs> you mentioned forecasting in that. Um, I think that brings to light another thing that a lot of people wonder, which is that in the beginning, you're buying the furniture. How do you know how much to buy? How do you know that, you know, you don't have too much lying around that, you know, you don't know what you're going to sell at the beginning. How did you sort of manage that? Not buying too much, too little. Some of it was gut instinct. So you'd look at who else was selling similar products on the market um, with platforms like eBay, very luckily you can actually see how many they'd sold. So you could go onto an eBay list and see how many sales they've had in the last uh, day. Yeah, you filtered by completed and sold items. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was incredibly useful information because we said, right, if we can get a similar product and it's going to be 20% cheaper than this, we can predict roughly how many we're going to sell. Other products, um, yeah, it, it's got instinct. And it's still today, it's very difficult to predict because you can do all of the research, all of the data, but it really depends on your merchandising. So if you get the images wrong, mm. if you get the price wrong, if the assembly is really difficult, all of these things can have an impact on how much you sell and what you sell. And mm. um, because if you get one bad review, no one's going to buy anything. And so it's really difficult to properly forecast. Um, but you can make best best sort of estimates, I think. And with a lot of our products now, where we have access to ten different uh, platforms and access to the German and US market, it makes it a little bit easier because you might find that. The product sells incredibly well on three platforms, mm. but not on the remaining six. So it's, yeah, it's, it's quite, it's quite tough. Uh, we do have a forecast on our team and, and poor guys. Yeah. It's been <laughs> pretty awkward. Yeah. 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 Um, also it's trying to forecast everything. But. And yeah. And, and I think we've always taken the approach of trying to get a minimum viable product to market as quickly mm. as possible to work out and see the sales and see if it's going to work. Mm. Um, and I think quite often lots of companies might spend way too long on something and they miss the boat. Um, so we're always trying to work out if, how we can do things quickly, how we can fast track something just to see if it works. And then if it doesn't, then we just move on. Mm. Right. That was going to be one of my questions, actually, is how do you decide what products you're launching and decide the success of that product? But you've sort of just touched on it. It's building what an MVP is as quickly as possible and just testing it in the market, really. Yeah, no, I, I think having too much choice sometimes is actually a bad thing. Yeah. Because I know myself, I, I can be quite indecisive. And if I go and look at a sofa and it's in 30 colors and there might be six different shades of blue, mm. if there was only one shade of blue, I'd probably make decisions how I'm going to get that. Yeah. But it, so for us, it is that minimal viable product and making one fantastic product or a selection of, um, like a small selection of fantastic products that you can then build on. Mm. Because if you then know what size, you can say, okay, um, we know that these ranges sold very well. Let's make a new 
um, or similar uh, mm. designs to that, but let's roll that out because we know that's successful. Was there any thought behind in the beginning sort of how many lines, not in terms of lines, but in terms of like, you know, we're going to focus purely on couches at the beginning and then we'll expand to beds and whatever it might, whatever it might be. Or did you think we're going to, we're going to start as a sort of suite? Was there any thought behind that? So we predominantly and still to the day do dining sets. That's our, our main um, main product. And partly the reason why we did that um, was, well, partly the reason why we still do that is because lots of people can't send dining sets through the, the through shipping uh, and it arrive at the customer undamaged. Um, so that's where our packaging came in. Um, but it was just circumstance that meant we started with uh, with dining furniture, although we did have a few other coffee tables and sofas. Um, and that's just the thing that sold. Mm -hmm. so. And did you have a business plan when you first started out in trust? Because I know that some people talk about, you know, if before you start a business, you have to put a business plan together and have a very clear idea of where you want to go and where you want to get to. And then some people say it's all about making mistakes along the way and following your gut, et cetera. So where did you, where did you two fall in, in, on those sort of? Never had a business plan. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is, this is the, I think the point, because it, a lot of it has been our gut. And yeah. um, now we, we do take more time doing it, sitting back and looking ahead rather than working sort of in the business working on it and saying right what do we want to do next year mm. how are we going to get there and that's so valuable the fact back at the start we didn't have a business plan it was just let's buy some furniture mm. yeah. and sell it yeah, <laughs> yeah. it yeah. sounds straightforward yeah. it's, it's very much just go 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 let's just do it let's just learn fast let's work out uh, work all these things out and um yeah as dan said we are now starting to be more considered and um more targeted in our approach mm. um and i think that is going to pay off i think we're going to see that actually being more targeted, taking a step back, really focusing on what needs to be done mm. uh, to get to where we want to get to um, will pay off. Um, but obviously um, we've had a good good seven years, so yeah. Yeah. maybe it's been a good thing. I think what's yeah. really important on that front as well is to give your staff and your colleagues visibility on where we see the business going mm. because they're a huge part of that. We wouldn't be anywhere near where we are today without our staff. Our team are fantastic, mm. like, absolutely fantastic, every single one of them. And if they can get on board with that vision and they can see, okay, for 2023, this is where we want to drive the yeah. box. They can be invested in that and they can move that forward. And mm. or I think things, we, we get very excited about things. So we're like, right, uh, by the way, guys, next two weeks, we're going on to being here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. rather than the team knowing that's the vision. Okay. Um, yeah, it's very helpful. As we um as we round off, this has been just such an amazing conversation. Um, there's one question that we like to ask all of our guests, which is if you could give one piece of practical advice to someone listening who wants to start a business, what would that be? And the reason I say practical is um, you know, obviously on a lot of podcasts and a lot of different mediums, we hear things like, you know, work harder than the next guy, believe in yourself, never give up, all that kind of stuff. But we like to focus on actionable things that people can really take home and apply to a business that they might already have or they might be starting. So you can do one each, you can do one combined, whatever you like. But uh, yeah, what's one piece of practical advice you could give? I don't know whether this is class as practical. So if I can do two, that'd be... You can do as many as you want. You can break the rule. Uh, yeah. yeah so, don't give us too much information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah the, the first one um, would be to be very deliberate about your time and where you're spending it and spend it on where you know the needle is going to be moved most and do that thing first. Because um, I think all too often, um, and I, I know I did this, um, you end up getting to the end of the day and the thing that was actually the most important thing to do, you haven't done. Um, and then that might roll into the next day. So be very deliberate about your time. And the next one, which is something everyone can do, is I'd recommend just sell something on eBay. Just get a product and just go and sell it. Just see what happens. Um, you'll make some money out of it. You might learn something. You might mm. talk to a customer. Um, so yeah, just, just sell a product. 
Monty's on commission with eBay. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. the link in bio, don't yeah. worry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's your Facebook marketplace, whatever. Yeah. No, if somebody's done that, I can completely see the value in that. Um, Monty? Not Monty, sorry, Dad. Do you want anything to add? Yeah, I, for me, one we mentioned already a little bit about working on your business rather than it. It's so easy to get consumed in the business and not think about how you can take that step forward if you're incredibly busy and you're doing mm. well. But take that step back, even if it's half a morning, just book it out mm. and say, you know what, for all of this morning, I'm not going to care about anything else going on. I'm going to sit and go through where I want the business to be and how that's going to happen. So that's that's the first thing. Um, on tradition with furniture, I'll go for a second one as well. Please do. Is um, I think it's seizing opportunity. So any time something, it might be good or bad happens, think how's that going to impact me and how can I win from the situation? Because a lot of companies through COVID um, didn't go online very quickly and thought, oh, this is terrible. You know, um, this is going to close down our stores. We, we thought the same thing. We were like, oh, this mm. is awful. How yeah. are we going to work with this? But the first thing we said is, right, okay, what happens if this happens? Mm. How can we keep the business going forward? How can we capitalize on that? And so anything that goes wrong, um, look at it and say, how can we turn this into a positive? That's That's a really... Four for the price of one there. I know that was that was really I mean there's not much I can say to that. Um yeah. guys, this has been uh, this has been amazing. Uh, the floor is yours for anyone listening or watching at home. Um where do you want to send people? This is your, your chance to plug. So anything furniture box, what do you want to say? Floor is yours. I, I would just say watch this space. I think there's big things to come uh from furniture box. Um it's really exciting what we're doing uh, with our products. Um and I think um hopefully in a few years' time you'll be able to to purchase one of them. Well, I'd say actually before a few years' time, if anyone yeah. wants to purchase, <laughs> yeah. we're actually on yeah, sale yeah, now. Exactly. Yeah, big sale on at the moment. But um, if you're in the market for any modern contemporary furniture, fantastic value um, with a fantastic service level, um, come and give us a look at Furniture Box. Guys, thank you, thank so, you so much. much. What an amazing Great. conversation. There you have it, guys. Uh, that was amazing. Thank you so much to Monty and Dan for being here. Go check out Furniture Box uh, online. And uh, for everyone watching at home, make sure you hit the subscribe button, hit that notification bell. If you're listening on Spotify, rate it five stars. And you can find us on social media at TGF Pod. And we will see you in the next episode. I've been Ollie Rayhart. He's Happy been James Keith. And we've had Monty and Dan here from Furniture Box. Thanks Thank for watching, guys. guys. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks for being here.